You're very welcome to the Football History Walking Tour podcast. My name is Aeon. I am Gary. This is not a good podcast. It's a great podcast. So last week we spoke, Gary, about Crow Park. That's right. And the players who have come from around that general area. And today we are talking uh, about uh, another player who comes uh, from around that specific area. Uh, and what a bizarre and extraordinary story it is. Back in the day when it was unusual to have a gun in your kit bag. Yes, but not forbidden. And <laughs> unusual to, not unusual to race off your line at a penalty kick. So we're going to talk about Tom Farkerson and indeed Alex Stevenson, two of the lesser known names uh, of Irish football lore from around that area. Um, and to uh, discuss this now, we are joined by Jerry Farrell. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Well, Gary, as you know, there's a huge number of, of former and actually current soccer internationals from around the Crow Park Stadium. We list them on our tour. We talk about Wes Hulahan. What's, what's Eamon Dunphy's famous line about Wes Hulahan? Uh, if you uh, take off Wes Hulahan, you can only replace him with Wes Hulahan. <laughs> that was actually an apparent match uh, <laughs> line, not an Eamon Dunphy line. Uh, yes, there's a lot of players who played uh, uh, for Ireland who grew up around the Croke Park area, including uh, Curtis Fleming. Um, uh, Wes Hulahan, as you just mentioned, Jack Byrne, uh, Stephen Elliott, Keith Tracy, Troy Parrott. Uh, many years ago, uh, Paddy Moore, who played yeah. for Ireland, uh, he scored four goals in a World Cup uh, qualifier against Belgium in 1934, back in the days when we used to score goals. Kenny uh, Cunningham is another one, Olivia too. So we found interesting in the tour the fact that in this mecca of Gaelic games, that is actually situated in what is a soccer area. Mm. But some of the names of people that have played for Ireland from around uh, Crow Park wouldn't be as well known to people. And we're going to talk about a few of them now with... Jerry Farrell, who comes from the uh, Bohemian Sporting Life um, blog and a number of other um, strings to your bow. Uh, Jerry, you're very welcome to the uh, Football Walking Tour welcome, uh, podcast. Um, Good morning, gents. Tom Farkerson is a, is a fascinating character who was originally, I believe, from Botanic Avenue, but around the time of the War of Independence was living on Jones's Road in a house that no longer exists. And he is somebody who had a fascinating career uh, in his... IRA activity, his soccer life, um, his changing of some of the rules of the game or his influence over that. Um, he had guns in his kit bag. He uh, had an interesting international career as well. Uh, Jerry, tell us a little bit about this fascinating character of Tom Farkerson. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, as you say, Crow Park kind of is the centerpiece of, of the tour. And I, I did the tour myself uh, a while back and really enjoyed it. Um, and you couldn't really get much closer to Crow Park than when, where Tom Farkerson lives. He, he was born on Botanic Avenue, but the, the family kind of moved to Jones's Road. Basically now what is part of uh, the Hogan stand, effectively. There was a terrace of houses there, long gone. And uh, Farkerson, an interesting character. His father was a, you know, kind of a relatively well-to-do kind of middle-class tradesman. He was kind of Scottish Presbyterian background. His mother uh, was a Dublin Catholic. Uh, Farkerson himself was raised as a Catholic. He went to the Christian Brothers School in O'Connell's. Uh, you know, I've got to say, he's born around 1899. So that's kind of the generation we're talking about. So he's, he's, a, he's a young right. man. He's a teenager when the rising happens, things like that. Um, he meets some interesting people at O'Connell's. Uh, he becomes friends with, with Sean Lamass, the, the future Taoiseach. Uh, Lamass, of course, was heavily involved in kind of Republican activity at the time. 
And, and this, you know, while at uh, O'Connell's as well, uh, I think Ferguson discovers his talent for sport. Apparently he's a good uh, Gaelic footballer. Uh, but while he's also playing for them, he's playing for a team on the North Circle Road in soccer called Annaly. And then he also plays for like uh, the CYMS, the uh, Catholic Young Men's teams as well, and things like that. So he's developing as a sportsman. Um, but he gets himself into a bit of trouble as a young man, kind of early 20s. Uh, he and Sean Lamass are apparently arrested while tearing down kind of wanted posters for IRA men during the War of Independence. And it's a bit embarrassing for his father, who does a bit of work as a tradesman for... Does he get sent to Manchoy? I think the parents get sent to Manchoy for this event. He, he gets arrested, yeah. He gets arrested right. and basically his, his father intervenes and gets his wayward son out of a bit of trouble by apparently through connections with the British Army because his father had done work with the British Army and the kind of proviso of getting his son released is that he basically has to skip town and get out of get out of Dodge <laughs> <laughs> so we would describe him less as an IRA activist more of an IRA sympathiser you might yeah, say yeah so yeah, I okay. suppose he's not like some kind of footballers the area you can mention who were actively involved in kind of you know kind of violent struggle and things like that and who were you know some prominent footballers like Oscar Trainer or the Dalton brothers, the Robinson brothers, who were very, very active and in active service. Sam Robinson would have been one of the squad. Yeah, he was a, a late addition to uh, Michael Collins' squad, things like that. Todd Andrews. Todd Andrews, you know, Mike Chadwick, all these loads of guys who were, were very involved. There is that kind of uh, second tier, I suppose, who were active sympathizers and who were maybe engaged as... Um, the likes of Ferguson was in kind of the propaganda sort of putting up posters or tearing down other ones and things like that. Mm. Um, so he's basically told, let's say, to get out of Dodge and he goes where any young man goes with, with dreams of making it for himself. He goes to South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to make it in the coal mining industry. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, right. But, so uh, that, so that's, that, that's his move. His yeah. move to get out of trouble in Dublin. Yeah. Uh, because of his father's intervention he, he goes to South Wales and he decides to concentrate on his, on his football well, or he not, begins to blossom as a footballer. Not really. It's kind of an accidental sort of thing. And it's an interesting one if you think about all the prominent Irish internationals at this stage. And you mentioned, say, the likes of Paddy Moragary mm -hmm. and people like that. You know, they all start off playing kind of, you know, for the small teams like, like Farxa did, Annalee, who were, you know, kind of minor cup team and things like that, or Leinster minor league team and things like that. And they, they're in a minor cup final, I think, against Olympia and things like that. And they progress on to the League of Ireland and then maybe they move to England. This is kind of an unusual route because he's playing for these smaller kind of non-League of Ireland teams. He goes over to Wales. He's working as a painter and decorator and things like that. Starts playing a bit of rugby for his local team, things like that. And then he gets kind of picked up by a Welsh League team as a goalkeeper. Uh, so he's kind of basically doing this as a sideline. Just He's a big sportsman. He's in interested in playing sport. And he's playing for a small Welsh League team. And eventually he gets spotted by Cardiff City, who are the big club in that part of the world. Um, they need a reserve goalie. He's signed up. He makes his debut. The first season there, he makes his debut. Last game of the season against Man United. You know, not, not a bad way to make your debut. And then he very quickly establishes himself as a first-choice goalkeeper with Cardiff. So it's kind of almost an accidental sort of thing. He doesn't go to Wales because he has an offer of a job with a football team. He goes there just for, you know, to work as a painter and decorator. And eventually gets spotted, you know, after a very circuitous route playing rugby and everything else. Uh, and he was uh, then uh, instrumental in uh, Cardiff uh, football uh, team for or Cardiff City uh, for winning the FA Cup, wasn't he? Absolutely, Gary. And you got to remember, Cardiff were a very good side at this stage. He's he's in two cup finals. He plays in the twenty five cup final where they lose to Sheffield United. 
Uh, he's part of the card team that comes second in the league uh, in the 24-25 season to the great Huddersfield team, which is a weird sort of thing to say that, you know, the top three that year were uh, Huddersfield, Cardiff and Sunderland. Um, and this is the great Huddersfield team of Herbert Chapman, manager of Arsenal. We come to him again sh- shortly. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's part of a very, very successful Cardiff side. 27, uh, they get to the cup final. Um, and it's a big deal. I can't remember, it's only the fourth cup final in Wembley, uh, which is only you know, built in 1923. Right. King George V is there. It's a big deal. You know, that it wasn't always, the monarch wasn't always at a cup final. This is still a relatively recent thing. So it's kind of a big deal sort of thing. Um, and you know it's a funny one as well because Cardiff are the, you know they've lost our, lost to Sheffield United two years earlier, but they could become the first uh, team to take the FA Cup outside of England, and they only have one Englishman in their their lineup. They have obviously Farkson Gall, who's an Irishman. They have a couple of lads from the north, and then they have you know various Welshmen and Scots and things like that. And they they, they do win. They win the cup final, uh, and it's one nil. And I suppose in the route to that final as well, Ferguson is crucial and it comes to what you mentioned before. Yeah, his, yeah, his he's a, known as the penalty king. I get the sense from him, <laughs> I've never having met him, <laughs> but I get the sense from that he's a bit of a headbanger. That there's a, well, most head goalkeepers are, and you would notice Gary as being a former goalkeeper, that you, you for a whole Celtic under 12s, that yeah. you, you need to have uh, something and missing. For, and for other teams, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to uh, Freshers team, uh, but you need to have something. Do you see something the Super a, League as well? Yeah, <laughs> you have something of a screw loose to be a goalkeeper. There's something. Goalkeepers are always the most interesting oh, of, really? a, of any team. Yeah. I okay, think. Okay, well, Albert Camus was a goalkeeper. That's true. Um, uh, the Pope John Paul II was a goalkeeper. Indeed, Johnny Logan. Johnny Logan was a goalkeeper. Chris O'Dowd. That's correct. Uh, Oscar Train. I mean, all these heavyweights of international. Life, Johnny Logan included. Well, I um, certainly had the heavy part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but, but anyway, so we he digress. He gets this reputation for being the penalty king because he does he concede a lot of penalties because he has the knowledge of how to save them. He's he's very very proficient at saving penalties. And just a slight digression, I suppose we could say that you know the Irish have a special connection yes, to penalties. Yes. Um, we invented the penalty. William McCrum of Milford County Armagh mm. invented. Uh, the penalty kick, what what they what was called the Irishman's motion by the International Football Board, where he was kind of saying, well, there's all this sort of stuff where this is in back in 1890 that you know players deliberately fouling other players in the box. It kind of goes against this idea that oh, a Victorian gentleman wouldn't foul another man when he's through and goal, but <laughs> remarkably they did. <laughs> right, so you invented the penalty spot, and there's a wee Dublin connection. He studied in Trinity College, even though he was from Milford County Armagh. And isn't there a Dublin connection with the penalty square as a penalty box, if you like, as to how that was constructed? Um, you might you have, I have that okay, on me. Okay, I'll, 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 uh, I'll do some more research yeah, on that, but I believe there was, a, there was a Dublin player who had a, who was a Gaelic footballer and had a terrible tendency to take the ball out of the penalty box. Because yeah, McCrum's motion that was put forward by the IFA was just that uh, a free shot would be taken anywhere 12 yards from the goal. So it wasn't a spot, it was a line, if you could imagine. Ah, right, okay. So you could take it from the kind of corner. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. That is much more... You could whip it in, you could put a bit of back curl on it. Yeah, it's much more democratic. <laughs> it it's, offers choice. Indeed. Um, anyway. Anyway. But returning to time. Right, so, so we have a long history with this, with this, <laughs> with this penalty uh, type scenario in, in, in the early years of soccer. And... Um, Tom Ferguson has a tendency to concede penalties and also he has mastered the art of saving yeah. them. He, he does. And I, I mentioned McCrum just because this was the rules around penalties are shaped by Irishmen because um, actually I think it's in that cup run when they play Chelsea. Uh, Ferguson runs off his line as the player begins his run up. And he talks about himself. He's like, 
obviously the, the closer you get to the player the narrower the angle for their shot so the easier it is to dive and block the shot um, and they he's so successful at this that they do change the rules about a keeper coming off his line when a penalty mm. kick is about, about to be taken now obviously with kind of mo- in modern football and with VAR and all this stuff this is something that's you know looked at in minutiae and things like that but. yeah it's kind of resurfaced yeah uh, in the VAR era <laughs> Uh, I, I was thinking for um, for 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 Tom Ferguson, mm. uh, he wouldn't want to. Would, he wouldn't want to have been uh, uh, facing, uh, or, or sorry, he would have wanted to be facing uh, Paul Pogba because by the time Paul Pogba actually got up to <laughs> kick the ball, uh, he, he, he would have been the there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so just to reemphasize that the reason why goalkeepers have to stand on their line today is because of Tom Ferguson. Yes, and his habit of rushing out as players began their run up, and of course. As we say, he makes that crucial save against Chelsea in the FA Cup. He's part of that team that win. Kind of, it's not a great final. It's this kind of scrappy one 0 win, uh, partially down to a goalkeeping error at the other end. But Cardiff win the cup. They're the first and only Welsh team to win the cup. Um, he's the first Irish goalkeeper to play in an FA Cup winning team. Uh, Shea Given has been in a few finals but never won it. So I don't. I'm trying to think. Actually, I can't think of another uh, Republic F- of Ireland FAI international, international. If you like, won, yeah. won an FA Cup. So he he gets uh, he's in that period of playing for Ireland when there's two Irish sides mm. when there's an IFA Ireland and an FAI Ireland, uh, and he gets selected to play for the IFA Ireland in 1931 and makes a controversial decision, possibly because of his Republican ideology. Absolutely, I should mention actually the day he plays in that cup final, Ireland are playing a match against Belgium, and understandably this is the FAI selection. Do uh, <laughs> inquire about him in Cardiff. Understandably, said, "Well, no, he's playing in the cup final that day, so he can't play in your international match." So he doesn't make his FAI debut until I think nineteen twenty nine against Belgium. By which stage he's thirty. Yes, so he's you know already. You got to imagine, think about that. Now you have a you know a first team player playing the top division in England. You know, team come runner up in the league. They've twice a cup finalist, and he doesn't make his debut till let's say he's he's thirty almost, and you know wouldn't happen today <laughs> anyway. Mm. But yeah, he he. As you say, there's a tendency for the IFA and the FAI to kind of select the same players. And because uh, the IFA are part of the, the home nations championship and things like that, the preference for releasing players is always given to kind of the IFA for, for clubs when they decide to release players. There isn't the same sort of FIFA mandate that you have to release players now. And mm. uh, you know, even though you know uh, the FAI are members of FIFA, this doesn't really cut any weight with the likes of the Football League and things like that. But as he makes a very controversial decision in 1931, where he basically says, look, I, my conscience won't allow me to play for um, the IFA anymore. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's wrong that they're claiming players from all the 32 counties, and I'm sticking only with the FAI now. And you know, he's lauded by uh, the FAI brass, because this is kind of a bit of a, a victory for them. It's a bit of a coup for them that someone has said this so publicly. And you've got to remember, he's turning down uh, you know, match fees, which would probably be the equivalent of a week's wages for him. Mm. Um, so he's, you know, he's taken a hit in the pocket to basically do that because a lot of players, you know, they wanted the prestige of playing international football, but also, you know, it was a, a time of the maximum wage when he's playing, I think the maximum wage per week is something like eight, eight or nine pounds. So he might get a tenner for playing for the IFA selection. So it's, it's quite a bit of money. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook.
Okay, Gary, as you know, if people want to get in touch with us for the football walking tour, we've been doing this since August 2020, and there's a north side one, there's a south side one. We haven't gone west side yet. Uh, we were hoping to do an east side tour. We haven't gone outside uh, the pale. Dublin Bay, mm. actually. Yeah. So it's walking tour at gmail.com. Uh, we, there's a Twitter handle of at footballtourdub, and littlemuseum.ie, which is the little museum on Stephen's Green, um, they also run our football tour. So littlemuseum.ie forward slash football tour. Yes, uh, forward slash. That sounds so Y2K. Kind of 1994. <laughs> Granddad, this is your email address. No, I think you're actually going back too far. I don't think it was in 1994. Forward slash. It didn't become a thing. Forward right. slash didn't become a forward slash thing until the late 90s. That's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> uh, what do you think? It's not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a good slash. <laughs> it's a great slash. It's a great forward slash. Uh, okay, uh, moving swiftly on in this podcast. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Visit doro.ie. Make friends with innovation. Isn't it also true, and I think Aon mentioned it here, uh, that he uh, had uh, an aid to his um, goalkeeping? He kept a gun in his kit bag. Well, this is, is reported in a couple of um, stories that, uh, and it's verified apparently by a couple of his ex-teammates mm. that he did keep a, a handgun in his uh, kit bag. <laughs> Didn't he produce it for one of his players? Uh, one, I think one of the players who was underperforming or was a little bit of a, yeah. a, a show of fancy. Damn, wasn't <laughs> not on the pitch producing. now. Not this on the pitch. In the, the in the dressing room. This is in the dressing room. I think... I think it would have been better if we'd been on the pitch. Actually, I think that would just sort of the image. Um, well, remember the uh, the PAOK, the Greek uh, uh, club chairman, running on the pitch with a handgun there a couple of seasons ago. It wasn't quite like that, but uh, yeah, he did apparently produce it as a as a an aid for encouragement to uh, one of his underperforming teammates. But uh, just uh, tangentially, tell us a little bit about this. That's not really the arm around the shoulder type management that I'm oh, familiar with. Uh, I think it was 2018 that the. Powak of Thessaloniki, yeah, they their club owner chairman ran on the pitch with a holstered um, automatic pistol on his hip to confront a referee at the end of a game where I think they were going for the Greek title, um, and he was subsequently banned. But this only endeared him further. No, the fan base. Okay, <laughs> so it was a kind of a, it, was, it was a shamazel of yeah. it was a shamazel of, of sorts. Yeah. Um, anyway, so so this gun uh, he whips out apparently. Yeah, so it, there's a cup. Like I thought it was a bit kind of tall tale, but it, it was. Because um, I, I I had got the impression that he had this gun in case his IRA pass came back to haunt him, or if some like, reference was made to it, or he was on edge living in Wales uh, as an ex IRA sympathiser, and therefore that might be the reason for the added security he felt he needed. But anyway, it's an interesting. Like I I think that is probably a little bit far fetched. As we said, he wasn't that actively in, involved, but apparently okay. yeah, there are a couple of. Uh, testimony is that he did have the gun he did produce it once at half time um i think it's even mentioned his his, his nephew or grandnephew kind of mentions that everyone else says he's a very kind of mild-mannered kind of soft-spoken guy but right. he obviously has a bit of an edge so if he takes out the gun you're gonna to have to take him seriously <laughs> yeah yeah i know it was, it was a kind of uh, it was a precursor to the kind of roy Keane. roy Keane's <laughs> gun is just his tongue really yeah. isn't it that's right it's like the ferguson hair dryer you know ferguson handgun okay <laughs> and 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 obviously this was a successful intervention the player seems to step up and yeah i mean he know. had a very successful career and he stayed at cardiff for uh quite he's until 1935 i think he at one stage he was the record appearance holder for cardiff i think he's still the record number of games for a goalkeeper for cardiff city uh, and you gotta remember they were you know that was a period of great success for them mm. towards the end of his career they're doing less well they 
basically they take a big kind of financial hit. They actually look to sell Ferguson to Hull at one stage, um, just surely because of his transfer value. But yeah, he kind of finishes up playing. I think in the third division for them because they kind of fall on hard times from this. But, but he is a one club man. He is a one club man. And is man, he still yeah. revered in Carter City? They still speak about him. Yeah, he's still like because that twenty seven team is probably the Cardiff City high point. Obviously, they got to another cup final. They were captained by another Irishman, Stephen McPhail. Um, you know, back was it twenty oh eight? I could be wrong mm. saying that. Um, but yeah, they've never won an FA Cup since. They've never come second in the top division in England. Um. Uh, since so he was part of their greatest ever team and I suppose you can almost look at it the way that say uh, Everton fans would look at say Dixie Dean or you know Newcastle fans look back on the year of Jackie Milburn and people like that that although those eras are probably well beyond living memory for most people especially Farkas's era we're talking about the 20s and 30s um, they're still revered club icons because that they were the high points of, of those clubs achievements really. and, and his later life his later life he moves to um, well he as we said, players back then, there's the maximum wage. While you're probably playing, pay, being paid relatively well compared to other working men and things like that, you're not making enough money to retire on. So he, he, he still has his painting decorating skills. He has, I think he has a little shop for a while in Cardiff. And eventually he moves to Canada um, because his, his, I think he has six children with his wife, who's also a, a Dublin woman. I think she's from Scaries. Uh, his children have emigrated to Canada from South Wales. Um, so he kind of joins them in his in his retirement. So uh, he passes away. I think he was seventy when he passed away in, in Canada. His son was actually a very successful athlete as well. I think he had a grandson uh, also played ice hockey over there as well. Mm. Yeah, I saw that. Yes. So it obviously runs in the uh, in the in the blood. When you said his wife was also, uh, 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 I thought you were going to say his wife was also a goalkeeper. Cardiff ladies team. No, I don't know of his wife's sporting prowess at all. Okay, but another player from from around the area who who uh, born in Richmond Road uh, is another fascinating character and a fascinating life. Around a similar time, he played actually with Dixie mm-hmm. Dean, who you just me- mentioned there when he when he played for Everton. Alex Stevenson, um, and again, interesting in that. Uh, he made his debut, Gary, in 1932 for the FEI. Yeah, he made, he made his debut in 1932 and then didn't get yeah. picked again until 1946. So he, he kind of had a difficult second album, 14-year <laughs> period there, didn't he? Uh, but that's, that's right, Gary, yeah. So he makes his debut while he's playing in uh, Dublin for a league of team called Dolphin, uh, who were uh, originally based out of Dolphin's Barn. And uh, they were kind of like one of the wealthier teams in the League of Ireland. Uh, apparently, I think it was the... A union of butchers or something like that originally set them up right <laughs> don't, don't ask me where all the butchers got their money from but anyway um yeah they had this quite successful team alex was uh one of the younger players in that team most of those players are brought in kind of hired pros from england and scotland and their coach is a scottish guy so he brings over a lot of scottish yeah. players uh alec i think joked that he was on three quid a week but the scottish guys got a fiver a week so you know big money uh this is in the early 30s so yeah he's kind of a contemporary of ferguson you know uh, when I say Ferguson's making his debut in 31, Alex, uh, as a much younger player, makes his debut uh, in, uh, shortly afterwards. Um, but the coach who is in charge of Dolphin becomes part of the coaching team at Glasgow Rangers. And, you know, he obviously knows a good young player and he signs Alex Stevenson. Um, now, he was of a Church of Ireland background. He was. And I think the, the, the coach in question would have known that because he signs him from a, a team called St. Bernard, Bernardus, Bernardus, uh, who are... You know, basically up around that North Wall area. It's a Church of Ireland team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Alec and his brother are playing for them. Also, Alec's father is involved in the FAI. He's on various different committees. He's Alec Sr. Um, so 
I suppose his, his religious background would have been known. And you got to remember, Rangers didn't, at the time, from the 30s, kind of 20s onwards, they don't really hire, hire Catholic players. But prior to that, they had had Catholic players. I think it's more of a hardening of an attitude in the kind of 20s and 30s. Right, okay. Um, but yeah, Alec goes to Glasgow Rangers. He's only a little guy now. I think most reports say he's about five foot five. Uh, and there's kind of questions about whether he's, you know, physically cut out for the Scottish League. But he does well enough. He kind of gets himself in the team. He's playing really well. He does enough to win a league title with Rangers. Uh, and he's doing so well that he gets spotted by Everton and signed up um, to go to Liverpool then, basically, uh, and become an inside forward at Everton. So he's kind of a, a tricky number 10, kind of playing uh, behind centre forward. And he has these great wing partnerships at Everton with you know, with the left wingers, uh, Jack Coulter and later Wally, Wally Boys. And then even at, later after that, uh, Tommy Eglinton, another dub, mm. uh, who joins Everton uh, later on in the 1940s. <laughs> Tommy Eglinton is uh, <laughs> came to national fame in 1990 to non-football people because uh, Eamon Duffy was giving out yards in the, the match uh, against Egypt in the World Cup and uh, there was a lot of long ball stuff and he was going what's that what's that rubbish was like, woof there it goes there it goes and he was saying this is a disgrace to the great football people of this country including Peter Farrell and Tommy Eglinton and, and, and obviously football people of this generation knew Tommy Eglinton was but other people mm. obviously didn't know to, uh, Tommy Eglinton the ole ole generation did not know, know who Tommy no, Eglinton no, was the bunting uh, plastic mm. hammer generation but then when Ireland were playing uh, way, um, uh, Italy in the, in the quarter final of the World Cup that year um, um, I think Ronnie Whelan was about to come on and uh, uh, Irish, uh, the Irish fans in the pub, I was sorry to say, bring on Tommy Eglinton. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny. But anyway, yeah. even though he's playing for a very successful Everton side, he's not playing for Ireland. No, and this is the thing he's and not... This is the this is the interesting mm. bit about this 14-year second album issue. Guess his day being 32, yeah. doesn't play till 46. Why? Yeah, exactly. And he's not selected while he's at Rangers. Now, the reason for that is Ireland don't actually play a game. But... and. In the meantime, I should answer, I should mention, he's being selected by the IFA selection. So he right. wins caps for the Norths, who are again playing as Ireland. Uh, but yeah, he, does, he doesn't get selected. And uh, as I say, it's after the Second World War before he actually gets his cap again. I think it's still the longest gap between first and second caps. I think it's 14 years or whatever. So there was a suggestion that perhaps yeah. it was because of his, his Glasgow Rangers connection or because he was Church of Ireland. But that was wasn't the reason, it. really, was it? It wasn't, no. And it, just before he passed away, he did an interview with Sean Ryan in, I think, Sunday Independent. And he said he never really knew this. And I did a bit of research. It did bug him. It, 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 it did. irritated him. Because, because he thought that people thought that he had turned down mm. uh, playing for, you know, he's a, he's a Dubliner. He said, no, that mm. was never any... He asked the, the chairman of Everton at the time. Uh, he asked Joe Wickham, who was the secretary of the FAI. Couldn't get an answer on it. But basically, looking through the Everton minutes, which are all digitised now, um, there was quite a deliberate thing where he was selected and called up and the Everton management refused it. And there's even one line which actually says uh, there is kind of a, a, an edict from the Football League that they're not to encourage releasing of players for the FAI selection. So... He, they tr the FAI tried to select him on five or six occasions, but each time Everton turned them down. And as I say, it's not till he's in his 30s that he actually starts being picked more regularly. And even though he's kind of coming towards the end of his career, he's uh, still one of the better players. I mean, he's been a league winner at Everton. He's played with Dixie Dean, as you mentioned, Tommy Lawton, great players. Uh, and, you know, he does win a few caps towards the end of his career in his kind of late and mid-30s. But it was really down to, um, you know, 
Everton refusing to release him. And that isn't hugely uncommon. We think of like the great Jimmy Dunn, who we mentioned earlier. Mm. He was, you know, scoring 30-odd goals a season for Sheffield United, never released by them to play for Ireland. Uh, the Another ex-IRA man. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> internee during the Civil War, a big Republican from Ringsend, uh, famously shouted down the Irish team when the Nazi salute was being performed in Bremen in 1913. That's right. Yeah. Uh, age nine. 39, yeah, 39, May 39. Yeah, and uh, shouts down the team that, uh, remember, 1916, remember the Battle of Ockham. I think it was <laughs> the fact that they were performing something German and sort of the sense of Irishness, but he was a big Republican. But again, he he he, uh, he was on the, on the wrong clubs, side of selection problems as well. Yeah. Uh, Arsenal and Sheffield United, the clubs where he was most prominent, uh, kind of refused to release him. They'll release him for the IFA selection, but not for the FAI. And this seems to be a policy across the English League. Yeah. I remember uh, John Giles, uh, many years uh, <laughs> later, uh, said that when he was first picked uh, for Ireland, uh, he, the reason he found out was because it was printed in the newspaper. It was like if you weren't reading the newspaper, you mightn't get your slot. Yeah, and this, this is um, not uncommon. Giles, he says that, but he's not the only player that happens to. And then there are these things that, you know, it was the, the FBI didn't necessarily have the admin. I think even Owen Hand talks about it where he had to ring uh, clubs up personally saying, We're selecting such and such a player. And then, right, where's the number for Ipswich and Right, we're selecting such a player. So it wasn't like there was, he had a secretary or an, administ- an administrator to help him with that. No. He was sending letters or, you know, later yeah. emails, obviously. Well, I think that actually happened up until the 90s where yeah. you know, Alan McLaughlin describes getting the, getting the letter on the same day as being called off ring. And Jerry Hardy, by the way, I actually met Alex Stevenson. Really? Uh, yes, uh, when I was, I was a kid, because he was the, a grand uncle of a good friend of mine. And he did come back to Dublin. He managed yeah. St. Pat's for a while and then Waterford. Um, so I remember him. Yes, I remember this man. Uh, so so, so uh, I, I've got the authenticity of his story. <laughs> I just love to mention about Stevenson. I think he's the only one I know who won an Irish league, um, an English league and a Scottish league. Uh, he was player manager for Pat's. He was still paying when he was, I think, 23 or sorry, 43 which would be 25 years very after young. his... He's very young, 43 is very sprightly. Ibrahimovic. So just, I mean, Jerry, thanks so much for... for and thank um, you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's fast, fast, there's two absolutely fascinating characters who grew up in around Crow Park that we probably never heard of before, uh, Tom Farkerson and, uh, and Alex Stevenson. But your blog, Jerry, tell us more about it. Uh, a Bohemian Sporting Life. Uh, despite the name, it's not all bow stuff. There's plenty of Irish football generally and a bit of global football there as well. Uh, updates, updated regularly. And there is an accompanying podcast, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we can't wait to have you on again. Thanks a million, Jerry. Thank you very Thanks, much, guys. Jerry. Thanks a million for that, Jerry. So, our details again footballwalkingtour at gmail.com, at footballtourdub on Twitter, littlemuseum.ie forward slash football tour. Thank you very much, Aon. I am Gary. He is Aon, and we'll see you next time.